0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: I'm Connor Reed, with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Sasquatch, Bigfoot, the abominable snowman, yeti, the Yowie, the Yeren, the Almas, ape men, cavemen, wild men—the missing link. The idea of the missing link came about in the mid-nineteenth century with the rise of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. In 1859, Darwin published his book on the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, and it was radical, revolutionary, and highly contentious. The problem though was that the mechanism by which it all worked wasn't really understood yet and there was a need for some hard evidence that would clinch his theory. If evolution really did work as Darwin described it, if, most controversially of all, human, chimpanzees, gorillas and other apes all had a common ancestor, it should all be there in the fossil record. There was a missing link in the theory. Well, actually, there were lots of missing links and they weren't really links because that's not how evolution works, but we'll come back to all that. For now, the hunt for the missing link was on.
0: So he postulated then the missing link as the one thing that would really conclusively prove his theory. theory being that we are all descended uh, from a common um, ancestor. So if you could find an intermediate form, a fossil um, of an intermediate that that showed that um, there was a transition period when um, an organism had the characteristics of two completely different species, that would prove the theory.
1: Professor Virginia Richter.
0: Okay, so um, my name is Virginia Richter. I'm a professor at the University of Bern in the um, Department of English Um, and my special interests are uh, Victorian and modern literature and in particular also the connections between uh, literature and science.
1: This was a period when plenty of exciting paleontological finds were being made. Dinosaur bones in particular, as I'm sure you know all about from listening to episode 25. And then, just after Darwin's Origin of Species... There was a key discovery Archaeopteryx
0: that was discovered in a quarry in Bavaria in eighteen sixty one so just two years after the publication of the Origin of Species. This fossil or this um, um, showed um, f- combined the features of reptiles and birds, um, so it looked like a reptile, but it had um, feathers on it. so it would have been really a very timely discovery uh, proving uh, or supporting Darwin's theory. But, of course, immediately there was a huge controversy um, about that. Um, there was a, a dispute between um, Thomas Henry Huxley, who was, of course, Darwin's uh, most staunchest uh, supporter, and Richard Owen, who was the most famous anatomist of his day and um, also a, a, an antagonist of evolution theory. And Owen said, no, this is not a missing link in the sense of combining the features of two species, but it's just an early kind of bird, so a primitive primitive bird, and so this controversy went on for quite some time.
1: A bird-like dinosaur was one thing. For most people, though, it was the human fossil record that was the most fascinating and controversial aspect of evolutionary theory the idea that we share a common ancestor with other apes. That there had been any number of other human-like species living both before and alongside our ancestors. The first of these fossils had been found just before Darwin's work in 1856 in a small river valley near Dusseldorf in Germany. The area was being quarried for limestone when some very unusual human-like fossils were uncovered. News of the discovery spread rapidly, such that you already know the name of this small valley of the River Dussel, Neanderthal. Um,
0: so that was 1856, and um, that these were discovered by chance. And then again, the same thing happened that we had a very intense um, debate uh, between um, scientists. So what did, what did, did these bones signify? Now, uh, are they really forms of a primitive humans or a human, so humankind's ancestors, modern, man, modern man's ancestors? Or were these skeletons just deformed by some, by some illness? Why is this a strange shape? Is um, can that be, is that a freakish um, occurrence? Um, was that um, does it actually nothing have to do with human ancestry?
1: The debates continued, but this was to be the first of a number of discoveries in close succession across the second half of the 19th century.
0: And then there was um, the German follower of Darwin, Ernst Haeckel who had postulated, taking up Darwin's ideas, who had postulated uh, the idea of the Pithecanthropus? So that is a hypothetical link between apes and um, humans. And it was um, then Eugène Dubois, a Dutch medical doctor who had read both Darwin and Haeckel, and also Alfred Russel Wallace's um, Malaya Archipelago.
1: You have to feel sorry for Alfred Russel Wallace. Independently to Darwin, he discovered the theory of evolution by natural selection. Darwin was a far more central figure in the scientific establishment, and he'd been working on the idea for far longer. But he hadn't actually published anything yet. So when he realised that Wallace had been working on the same idea, in the end, both of their papers were presented together. Ultimately, though, it was Darwin whose name went down in history. Anyway, that's Alfred Russel Wallace. We were talking about Eugène Dubois and his search for the missing link,
0: and um, he was fascinated by this search for the missing link. And he had uh, the idea that um, the tropical zones would be the would be the best place to to look for the missing links. Uh, link. So, inspired by um, Russell's the Malay Archipelago, he just had him posted as a doctor to to um, Java and spent his time there looking for. Um, for for these fossil bones and was then in the end successful. So that was the um, Java man or what he called the Pithecanthropus erectus, today called the Homo erectus. So that was one another um, of these series of discoveries that then went on in the 20th century and that gradually uh, really showed that um, humankind had developed from an ape-like creature um, so that Darwin was right.
1: Java Man, later Homo erectus, was, as the name suggests, erect. They had shorter arms and longer legs and stood more upright, similar to modern humans, and they were the first human ancestors to spread outside Africa. And they lived a very long time, from about 2 million years ago until around 250,000 years ago. Us Homo sapiens have only been around for about 300,000 years. And so, as new human ancestors were discovered, more Neanderthals were found over the decades as well, a pop culture image grew around these missing links. For the most part, early 20th century depictions of Homo Neanderthalensis, the Neanderthal, or Pithecanthropus were of brutish, dim-witted cave dwellers. Lots of hair, big clubs, animal skins, you know the idea. And they started popping up in lots of works of early science fiction and in adventure tales from H.G. Wells to Arthur Conan Doyle to Inger Rice Burroughs. And these ideas have changed and been updated a lot in recent decades, especially with regards to the intelligence of early humans. But the brutish Neanderthal image is now so well established that it's kind of hard not to think of them this way. So missing links were all over popular culture in this period.
0: Popular fiction and fiction in general was really very quick um, to pick up Darwin's ideas. And of course, it's exactly this idea of the missing link was something that lends itself to um, to adventure fiction. So you have loads of texts, uh, many of them forgotten now, but some are still um, being read um, that pick that up. The beauty
1: of the missing link is that it's missing, which means it's a puzzle, it's something that can be solved, something that can be found following a quest in an adventure novel, or it's the missing link in a mystery tale. In reality, in evolutionary terms, the idea of a missing link is a little bit misleading. It implies that evolution is a chain and that this single missing link will restore continuity, connecting one part to another, but... In Darwin's famous image of the tree of life, evolution is like a continually branching tree. It's not a single unbroken chain. You know that very, very famous image? It has maybe five types of human. There's an ape, and then there's a more upright ape, and then there's a sort of a caveman type image, and then a sort of modern man or something along those lines. That really, really famous image, it doesn't really illustrate how evolution works at all. But these sort of images and the missing link images is much easier and it's much more powerful and it's much better for a narrative. So that's the idea that has stuck around. I did an episode recently on Jekyll and Hyde, number 35, if you want to have a listen. And this is one of so many stories from this time that were heavily influenced by all of these ideas of missing links and human ancestors.
0: Um, Perhaps one less obvious example is Stevenson's uh, strange case of um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Of course, Mr. Hyde um, is described also as, and he's swarthy, so he's very dark, he's small, um, he is uh, bent over, he moves very, very quickly, he's very strong, uh, he has a, you know, he's very hairy, his, ha- his hand is very hairy, and Mr. Utterson, the the, the detective character in um, this story, uh, also describe, describes him as troglodytic, so Mr. Hyde is clearly associated with, um, Uh, Both the human ancestry and with with the ape, and of course that is Mm. particularly a particularly nice analysis of this um, anthropological anxiety, because um, of course Mr. Hyde is uh, the alter ego of Dr. Jekyll. So this apishness and savageness are lurking inside uh, the civilized Englishman and are always in danger of, of erupting.
1: This idea of so-called savageness lurking inside the civilised is at the heart of Tarzan, too, who I talked about two episodes ago. Arthur Conan Doyle, the subject of episode two, is another important author in this regard. Wow, these episodes are really tying in very nicely together. And actually, while I'm talking about all these episodes, if you've been enjoying them, maybe you'd like to consider supporting the show on Patreon. If you're like Nick, the latest wonderful and kind patron of the show, then you could be listening to bonus episodes right now and feeling all smug about yourself for supporting all the work that goes into making this show. So head to patreon.com slash WTTE for more. Secondly, before I return to all these strange human-like creatures, I wanted to talk about some far sexier beasts. That is to say, I want to recommend the podcast Sexy Beasts. Resident comedians slash cryptozoologists Tony Cantwell and Mark Jago work through some of the world's weirdest creatures week by week. All the greatest ape men have had appearances from Bigfoot and Yeti to Yowie and the Sheep Squatch, not to mention Selkies, Trolls, the Capilobo, the Juba and plenty, plenty more. Listen wherever you're listening to this right now for some very good cryptid entertainment. Now, back to Arthur Conan Doyle and his missing links. So, as I've said, it's not a coincidence that missing links from paleontology are found alongside detective fiction. There's a central mystery to both. In fact, Arthur Conan Doyle was actually a suspect in a famous forgery case of this period, the Pilttown Man. So this was a discovery made actually quite near Doyle's home in Sussex, and it was claimed and believed to be a new and really important paleontological find, one to rival the Java Man. It was finally uncovered as a forgery in the 1950s, and while Doyle was never really strongly considered as a suspect, it was very tempting to look at the creator of Sherlock Holmes as a potential suspect in this devious crime.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm clear. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, would be a very good example because he he was um, very interested in in these um, theories. So he had he had this theme also in some of the Sherlock Holmes stories, for example. Um, The Adventure of the Creeping Man. The Creeping Man is a a professor who starts to behave very strangely. And as Sherlock Holmes finds out, he uh, was taking a medicine to rejuvenate um, himself because he'd fallen in love with a younger lady. And this medicine was made of monkey glands and it had the effect of making him so to revert, yeah, to become ape-like and um, animal, um, animal-like. Um, um, so they, this is one example from detective fiction. Conan Doyle also was. Um, he had other series um, of novels, the, and the Professor Challenger novels, and the best known of them is The Lost World, where um, there is an expedition under the leadership of this Professor Challenger, um, going to South America and on an isolated plateau, they encounter actual um, 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 ape men. So um, exactly these um, surviving missing links who are very uncanny uh, because, um, because of the similarity uh, or, or because they are both human and ape at the same time. So that's really something very, very frightening.
1: And yeah, this is what's important. It is frightening or uncanny. Lots of these missing links or ape-human hybrid stories had elements of horror because there was plenty that was disturbing or unsettling about this whole idea. There was lots of anthropological anxiety, as Dr. Richter terms it.
0: This fundamental um, category crisis that followed from Darwin's theories so the the anxiety about, or the uncertainty about um, human status, um, this questioning of the unique um, quality of the humans, um, um, also the fact that human superiority was called into question by uh, common descent and by this theory of um, the evolutionary origin of the higher faculties and also this loss of a divine plan. So instead of God planning everything for us and salvation uh, beckoning in the end, uh, we have this really messy and uh, contingent trial and error method of, of evolution so all of these things really um yeah put into question this um, certainty that uh, humankind is the superior species and that nature is something that is um distinct from from uh, humankind yeah humankind are um i mean the human body is still as part of nature but there is um, a realm within the human that is clearly not part of nature, that is um, actually somehow under divine control. All of these things, um, that is what I uh, refer to as anthropological anxiety.
1: That uncanniness, that realisation that humans are not all that distinct is really apparent, I think, when you watch other apes, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, something that is obviously fairly commonplace for many of us now, given the prevalence of zoos. In the 19th century, though, zoological gardens opened to the public. This was a very new concept. Dublin Zoo, just down the river from where I'm recording right now, was one of the very first, actually, opening in 1831. And while chimpanzees and orangutans were a bit more common in zoos around this time, the gorilla remained a mystery until well into the 20th century. There had been alleged sightings and vague descriptions, but... Really only a very, very small handful of Westerners had actually seen gorillas in the wild in the 19th or even early 20th century. Very little was understood about gorillas and there were plenty of myths and misconceptions about what they looked like, how they acted, how human-like they were. Much like the numerous other ape men and missing links from Bigfoot to the Yeti to whatever local variation you care to choose – It seems that wherever you are in the world, there's a story of a mysterious ape-like human lurking in the woods or the mountains. We are obsessed with stories of ape-human hybrids by early types of humans and species that blur the boundaries between us and our ancestors.
0: I think, I mean, partly these are just great adventure stories. (laughs) Um, But I think what drives us is also the question who we are right and what is what does it mean to be a human what is the limit of the human and you can explore that by looking at figures that are similar to humans but not quite the same right so so they are kind of um so apes yetis but also machines artificial intelligence that cannot be distinguished from from humans i think they have the function of um showing us a mirror but also maybe there's something that you take out, something that is different. Uh, uh, so, so um, um, in uh, artificial intelligence, it's the emotional quality that that is that is lacking. So, if something is lacking, and then you can always ask the question: Is this one thing? Is that the thing that is specifically um, human? So, I think that's one possible um, possible answers to, um, to that i think it's also the uh, just the the quest for the last things that remain um somehow unknown because um science has progressed so far that um if you think again about back to the 19th century how uh, how much was not known then and how what, what um scientists could discover then And it seems much more limited today. So I think they can think of, okay, there is still this one area that is mysterious and that we need to find out something about. So I think that's also something that um, triggers interest in these kinds of stories.
1: Our knowledge of Bigfoot has not, unfortunately, advanced much in the last half century or so. But our understanding of apes and of our evolutionary ancestors very much has Literature and culture has come to reflect that too, especially in the ways we now think about ape intelligence.
0: And so I think in, in literature, uh, we can see a very um, su- significant um, shift in um, from, from modernism on, on, onward, uh, where rather than being figures of horror um, and menace that needs to be um, exterminated, um, we find sympathy with apes uh, because apes now come to represent uh, unity with nature that humans have lost. Um, so to become an ape uh, in the in the uh, 19th century, that was something terrible or a great, great uh, danger. Uh, in the 20th century, it becomes like uh, becoming, to become a human, for an ape to become a human is a tragedy uh, because they lost, lose this unity with nature. Um, I think the most prominent uh, example is um, Kafka's report to an academy where a speaking ape addresses an audience and tells the story of his how he become became, became um, a speaking um, human, but it's not a happy story. Um, and um, we have many stories that um, describe apes as lab animals, zoo animals, um, and in more recent literature as an endangered species. So there is um, so concern about apes, and they are really they are giving a really prominent um, figure in. Um, Contemporary literature uh, where they appear as three really central characters.
1: There are lots of contemporary stories with apes at their center, too. And I asked Dr. Richter for a modern recommendation.
0: In, in contemporary literature, um, I really liked Colin McAdams' A Beautiful Truth. Um, that was a very beautiful story about an, um, a chimpanzee who's ad- adopted as a baby by a human couple and grows up as their child. Um, but then, um, yeah, things go wrong when, when he grows up that was a really well-written book that I enjoyed reading.
1: In cinema, TV and other media too, ape-human hybrids are everywhere, constantly being reinvented and reimagined from King Kong to Tarzan to Planet of the Apes, for example. So in the end, there is no missing link as such. But Darwin's theories were correct and our understanding of our own origin has advanced massively since his famous publication. And yet there's still so much we just don't know About our own species, about our own past on this planet Which is fine, scientists will keep uncovering more And fiction will keep filling in the blanks In new and entertaining and fascinating ways That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks this week to my guest, Professor Virginia Richter. I have included links to all of her work and her bio on the website, which is WTTEpodcast.com. If you head there, you can also check out pictures and links and all of the previous episodes and lots of other lovely things. You can sign up for the newsletter if you like. You can also follow Words to that Effect on Instagram and on Facebook and I'm on Twitter at eid. So get in touch, say hi and I always welcome suggestions for new episodes. I had one just the other week which is in fact going to be the next episode. So get in touch. Music this week was by Blue Dot Sessions and finally, if you'd like to support the show head to patreon.com slash WTTE. That's it. I'll see you in two weeks for another episode.